All right. Welcome back. <laughs> and uh, so we are, yesterday we were looking at the, almost like the end of the gradual training. Yeah, we're looking at all the uh, factors of samadhi towards the end, the four jhanas, uh, uh, the immaterial attainments. And uh, that is in many ways kind of the end of the gradual training. It kind of stops there. Uh, and of course, beyond that, you have the insights, uh, the awakening experience itself, the uh, insight, the seeing of rebirths of past lives, the understanding of kamma, the mechanism that drives the rebirth process, if you like. That's what kamma really is about. Uh, so the, uh, that's really where it ends. And after that, the uh, Potapada Sutta carries on uh, and it gets into some philosophical ideas about uh, uh, the self, what the self is, and these kind of things. Uh, so I thought at this point it might be useful maybe to have a look a little bit at the five khandas, uh, because the five khandas, the five aspects of personality, these things, uh, they are like the ground for insight, the ground for seeing things according to reality. Yeah? So this is uh, what that is about. So I think this might be a good point, because uh, having established samadhi, having established that uh, calm and clarity of the mind, uh, the mind is ready for these kind of insights. In fact, insights start even before this. Uh, you can get insights into the five khandas at various levels and various degrees uh, as you practice your meditation, just mindfulness of breathing or whatever. Uh, and so we will look at how that happens as part of that process. But before we do that, let's just in general have a little bit of look at a few suttas that uh, talk about these five khandas. Uh, so now we're coming towards the end of the, um, of the pages you have there. I'm not sure what page it is on, really. Page 24 or something like that. Uh, towards the end of the, um, the last few suttas, uh, last four suttas or something. <coughs> and there is uh, one sutta called, it is, It's Not Yours. After Kalavihara, yes, exactly, yeah. So after the one we did last time, yeah. So uh, I think it says SN 2223, but actually it's supposed to be SN 2233, exactly what that sutta is. Uh, so um, these are the, uh, this chapter SN, yeah, this is the Sangyutta Nikai, these are the connected discourses. Uh, and they are connected in the sense that they are grouped according to themes. Yeah, these are thematic suttas. So uh, this particular chapter, this 22nd chapter, is the chapter on khandas. Yeah, these five aggregates. As it is usually translated into Pali, it means like uh, aggregate is just here a, a, co a collection of phenomena of the same type. That's why they call five aggregates. And uh, this is in the 33rd sutta in that collection. And uh, it is titled, It is Not Yours. Um, so let's just, I'll just read it, out, read it out first of all, and then we can uh, discuss the content in, uh, uh, afterwards. So this is uh, a very simple and short sutta, really. Uh, and this is how it, how it goes. At Savati, mendicants give up what is not yours. Giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. And what is not yours? Form isn't yours. Yeah, rupa, one of the five khandas. Form isn't yours. Give it up. 
giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. Feeling is the same thing for each one of the five khandhas. Feelings isn't yours. Give it up. Giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. Perceptions aren't yours. Give them up. Giving them up will be for your welfare and happiness. Choices aren't yours. Give them up. Giving them up will be for your welfare and happiness. Consciousness isn't yours. Giving it, give it up. Giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. Suppose a person was to carry off the grass, sticks, branches and leaves in this Jeta's grove, or burn them, or do what they wanted with them. Would you think this person is carrying us off, burning us, or doing what they want with us? No, sir. Why is that? Because that's neither self nor belonging to self. In the same way, mendicant forms isn't yours. Giving it up, sorry, give it up. Giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. Feeling, perception, choices, consciousness isn't yours. Give it up. Giving it up will be for your welfare and happiness. So this is the um, first sutta here on the five khandhas. And uh, uh, this is uh, like the non-self aspect of the five khandhas. And uh, uh, in a sense, this is what we are trying to kind of get to at the end because the non-self aspect is really the uh, kind of the critical thing to be able to see on this path. If you can see non-self, uh, then of course that is what changes everything here. So this is kind of the critical insight, if you like. And that's why, uh, uh, specifically, why the Buddha talks about and divides the personality into these five groups because that is where the sense of self tends to stick to uh, these five groups, yeah, so you kind of investigate them, that's where you can uncover this idea of the uh, perception, the false percep- perception of a self, uh, you uncover it in this way by contemplating these things. Uh, so this is just a very gener- general kind of uh, expression of this, uh, yeah, give up these things, uh, and again, what does it mean to give it up? And obviously, the five khandhas are going to be there. You can't kind of, you know, burn them or get rid of them in that sense. You could, but it's not recommended. But so you, the way to deal with the five khandhas, the giving it up, means giving up the desire and attachment to these things. That is what giving up refers to in this particular case. So if you give up attachment and desire for these five khandhas, that is for your welfare and happiness. Yeah, it's almost the opposite of what we think. We try to hold on to these things because if we hold on to them and we kind of try to control them, we try to make them ours and, you know, kind of deal with them in the right way, then we will be happy. Then we will have kind of welfare as a consequence. Yeah, we try to make sure that we experience as many happy feelings as we can. We try to choose the right things in life. We try to make our body just right. And we try to control our existence in in all of these various ways. This is how we normally deal with these five khandhas. But the Buddha says, actually, if you want to be happy and happy, and you want to do things for your welfare, you should do the exact opposite of what we normally do. You should just let them be here. Yeah, allow them to be the way they are. Don't attach to them. Don't try to control them. Go with the flow, as they say. Allow things to develop in their own way. 
And as you do that, as you don't get involved, you don't attach, that is when you can maximize your well-being in this life. It's kind of strange, isn't it? It's such a different way of looking at things. And the only way we can really do that is through this kind of insight, seeing things as actually not really belonging to us, having nothing to do, do with us. And it's a very powerful simile here, the simile, the idea of the branches and the leaves in the Jeta Grove. The Jeta Grove is Anattapindaka's monastery, where the main monastery of the Buddha. And of course, this was outside of the city, lots of trees, lots of branches everywhere, and belongs to no one. Yeah, it's just a forest, the king's forest or whatever, and someone comes and takes it away. You know, you're not concerned about it. It doesn't worry, it doesn't worry you at all. Someone burns it, okay, whatever, it's fine. That is how you're supposed to see yourself. Yeah, this body is like this pile of leaves on the ground. And it's a very different attitude to our experience, to our entire personality. And you can imagine what it, what it would feel like if this body, you just see it as those leaves. It's like, okay, you experience it, but you have a, it's like a very different attitude of feelings. You have pain in your body. Okay, you still experience the pain. But it becomes kind of impersonal. It's just an aspect of nature. This is what nature does. It creates these bodies, it creates these feelings. And the feelings you have are just like the feelings that arise from anything external in the world around you. There's something external, got nothing to do with you. It's a kind of strange way of thinking about things. But it's also liberating because you don't take it personally anymore. Yeah, pain comes, happiness comes, the changing of the season comes, it's exactly the same thing. And it's just to be expected, because that's the nature of the world. But actually, you can allow it to be. So it's a kind of, it's a very beautiful simile in a way, and it kind of makes it very clear what is going on. So to understand this in a bit more detail, Let's just very briefly discuss the idea of these five khandas again, yeah? what, it actually, what they actually mean, and how we can know, how we can recognize them, etc., etc. So the word khanda again means like a group, yeah? that's why it's called an aggregate. An aggregate means an aggregation, a, a number of things coming together and forming a whole, that's kind of an aggregate. And uh, the word in English is a very kind of technical word, uh, but it just means a heap of stuff kind of coming together. And so we divide the human being into these five different heaps, yeah? these five groupings, if you like. And that's what we are, how the Buddha regards us, or how he points out one way of looking at us as human beings. So what is that? And what it is, is what you experience right now. This is the five aggregates right now. That is what you experience. Right? What do you experience right now? Well, you experience like a physical body. Yeah? It's right here. You can see it. You can kind of feel it in a sense. Yeah? This is rupa kanda, the form aggregate. Where you can see things outside of you. You see forms. You see things in the world. This is part of that rupa aggregate. Your ability to hear, your ability to experience things through the five senses. That very ability is also part of the rupa kanda, the rupa aggregate. So it's, all of these things are part of that. But uh, the rupa kanda can be coarse and it can be subtle. It comes in a variety of degrees. And of course, as human beings, it is often quite coarse. Yeah, the physical body is very kind of solid and coarse. 
But uh, the rupa kanda kind of follows you as you go deeper into meditation. You can, for example, in deeper meditation, you may start to see things, uh, see visions. You have the ideas of nimittas. Yeah, you see nimitta, for example, like a, a form in your meditation. That's part of the rupa kanda because it is a form. So, and if you take rebirth, say, in a more refined realm, yeah, in a higher realm, a devaloka, something like that, you will still have form, you will still have a body, but it will be more refined. So rupa comes in many degrees and many varieties, from very coarse to very refined. And all of that is part of rupa kanda. And that's why you take it with you all the way to the jhana states. And in the jhana states is where you find the most refined forms of all. It is so refined, you don't even recognize it as form usually. But it's still considered part of the same kind of uh, this form, kanda. You have gone beyond the sensory world, uh, but just because you have been gone beyond the sensory world, uh, there is still a little bit of rupa left, even outside of that sensory world. It's a purely mental rupa. And this is kind of interesting. All of these things, they can be experienced physically through the body, through the eye, but it can also be experienced in the mind, yeah? If you have a dream at night, you can see things in a dream. Well, that's rupa that you see in the dream. Even though it is a purely mental thing, it is still part of this rupa world. So it's very broad in the sense, and it has a lot of uh, variety to it. In, in the end, you can say that rupa is just a particular aspect of perception. It is one particular aspect of perception, but it is a very important one. It's very important because it concerns the body and the five senses. And this world is one of the things that we really have to let go of to be able to go deeper in meditation practice. So seeing this clearly is very helpful for meditation. So, yeah, so we can experience that right now. Form, yeah, it's very obvious. This is our experience right here and now. Feeling, it's quite difficult to translate Vedana in the right way. But Vedana just means... Refers to the whether you are enjoying the experience or not enjoying it. Is it a positive experience or a negative experience, or is it neutral? And all experiences that are positive are grouped together as positive vedana, sukha vedana. All the negative ones are called dukkha vedana, painful experiences. Some of them are neutral; they are adukkha uh, masukha, neither happy nor neither painful nor nor pleasant. And these things can change very rapidly. Yeah? When you sit here right now, you may, for example, you feel the body, you feel an ache. Okay, dukkha vedana. Yeah? And then you kind of go back and you look outside. You see this room. Okay, this is a kind of very nice meditation room. So you have maybe a positive feeling. Okay, sukha vedana. Then you feel your body again, dukkha vedana. Then you hear what is going on. Yeah? Hopefully that's mostly sukha vedana, but maybe occasionally dukkha vedana. I don't want to hear that. That's too, too challenging. I don't know. So this will vary, right? And you can see those feelings kind of being very moving around all the time, very uncertain, very changeable, moving from one thing to another one. Yeah, this is the kind of the basic idea of feelings in the suttas. And one of the things that we're trying to do on the Buddhist path is to change these feelings, yeah? So we can have more sukkha and less dukkha. This is kind of part of this. And there's many ways of doing that, but one very simple way of having more sukha is just to change your attitude to things. This is a very simple thing. You can experience exactly the same thing, but it can be turned into sukha rather than dukkha, or at least less dukkha. So, so these feelings are not, on the one hand, they are divided into sukha and dukkha, happiness and pain. 
But of course, within each one of them, there's a broad range yeah, from tiny bit of happiness to massive happiness, from a little bit of suffering to massive suffering. Yeah. So these are very broad ranges of feelings within these gr basic groupings. It's not as if all Sukha Vedana is the same. Yeah? It is very, very powerful Sukha Vedana and then the kind of ordinary Sukha Vedana. So we're trying to move towards the more refined stuff, uh, the more uh, useful parts of these happy feelings. Uh, but right now, you are, if every one of us right now is feeling some kind of Vedana, uh, and then there is a perception. Yeah, right now you have perceptions. You're making sense of the world. You're making sense of what you see, of what you hear, of what you think. All of these things have to be made sense of. You have to be able to distinguish the colors around you. Yeah, brown color, the floor is brown, table is kind of off-white or whatever. And this ability to distinguish and make sense of the world, this is what perception is about. Every time we do anything, every time our senses engage with the world, you have pasta, you have experience. Perception is part of that. That's how we know what is going on. Uh, perception is very broad. It's also on the conceptual realm. It's not just in the immediate experience of the senses, uh, but also in the conceptual realm. Yeah? You, know, you think of someone as a friend, uh, or you think of someone as an enemy maybe, or you think of someone as a neutral person. Uh, this large, very large part of how we think about things are not things in the world, but they are concepts, ideas about the world. War and peace, yeah? these are concepts and ideas. And we understand the world in accordance to that. That is all the realm of perception, according to the, uh, the Buddhist analysis. So this is a very, very broad category here. Yeah? by which we make sense of anything in the world. And right now, we're making sense. Yeah? Language is this very complex thing. It's kind of you know, just sounds coming out of someone's mouth. Yeah? And we make all these meanings out of that. It's kind of amazing how this complex idea, just hearing sounds and listening to what someone says, and out of that emerges all of these meanings, often very profound and complicated meanings. And all of that happens instantaneously. Yeah, and that is all through perception. It's a very kind of advanced thing that we do. It's the ability to understand the spoken word so quickly and so fast. It's actually astonishing when you think about it. It's just noise in the air, really, and somehow we make it into something meaningful. It's kind of extraordinary, extraordinary ability to be able to do that. So right now, that is happening all the time. And then there is the idea of choice, yeah, or the will. This is sankara in Pali. And this is just your ability to attend to one thing or attend to something else, to choose one thing rather than choosing something else. So what are you attending to right now? Where is your mind leaning? What are you interested in? Yeah? And that thing that you are attending to, that is you are choosing, you're using your will to direct your mind in a certain direction. And then you may direct your mind somewhere else. Suddenly you are thinking about something, yeah? Then you have chosen that. Sometimes you may not even be aware that you choose it. It happens so fast. But there's some kind of choice happening there whereby you are changing the direction of your attention to something else. So uh, choice isn't yours, says the Buddha. Yeah, it's kind of really fascinating here. He says that this, this isn't, doesn't belong to you. You are not that choice. You don't really make those choices. Choices kind of happen to you almost. 
yeah, the more you can see that, that you are, the choices are just this thing which happens when cause and conditions come together, then you make a choice. Why do you, why do you like certain things? Why do you attend to certain things? Well, actually, it is not a self. It is just causes and conditions coming together in the present moment. So choice is a very important part of the human experience. Yeah? We love the idea to choose, we love to create, we love to make things, we love to, be, love to be the agents in our own life, feeling of independent, yeah, I make choices, I don't allow the world to kind of uh, affect me, I'm responsible for myself. Yeah? And of course all of that is just turns out to be wrong. <laughs> this is kind of what is so weird about it. It turns out that we are conditioned to do those things rather than being independent agents. All that sense of pride in our choices and being independent actually turns out to be largely an illusion. You know, sometimes when I, I was recently in Singapore, and uh, in Singapore, that people who are atheists, they tend to call them fr free thinkers over there. That's kind of the, the kind of the term they use over there. Not really religious, I'm a free thinker. But of course, the whole idea of being a free thinker uh, is a mistake. There's no such thing as free thinking. Yeah? There's only conditioned thinking. Yeah? So that's why I told them, you're not, you're not a, you think you are a free, you're not actually a free thinker at all. No, I, I tried to say it in a kind of polite way, but... Uh, <laughs> But there's a kind of conceit, there's a conceit in the idea of being a free, a free thinker, because actually, no, no one is a free thinker. We are conditioned thinkers. And if you think you are a free thinker, that's just another condition. And it's just another way of being, you know, whether you're a Buddhist or a free thinker, it just depends on cause and conditions, really, at the end of the day. But there's a kind of conceit in that. And, uh, but I mean, again, we are all conceited, so what, what do you expect? But that's, uh, that's part of that. So the choosing, the choice, yeah, is not really yours. It comes through cause and conditions. And um, yeah, if you could choose whatever you wanted to, you would choose to be peaceful in your meditation, right? You can't choose that. If you could choose whatever you wanted to, you would choose to be enlightened straight away. You can't choose that. Your choices are limited by all kinds of things in life. Last one is consciousness. Yeah, that's your ability right now just to be aware just to be present, uh, that basic knowledge of what is going on, uh, that is consciousness. Uh, yeah, just the kind of the most fundamental idea almost on this entire path is the idea of consciousness. You can let go of almost everything else. Uh, you can let go of seeing and hearing the senses. You can let go of the will to a large part. Uh, you can reduce the feelings more and more. Uh, but behind everything that is going on, all the other changeable things, uh, there is consciousness. Uh, it seems to be always present, yeah? And, uh, but the Buddha says even that, ultimately, is not actually yours. That's kind of really challenging, yeah? Even the knower can come and go. It is something that isn't always there, and it moves from one sense to another sense. Now you see, now you hear, now you are in your mind sense. And if you are able to see that movement between the senses, you will see actually consciousness is not the same. These are called the six classes of consciousness in the suttas, the, the chavinyana kaya, kaya again, the word kaya coming in, the classes of consciousness. So there's different classes, you move from eye to ear, and they're completely different. There's no overlap, there is no kind of uh, continuity from one to the other one. They are discrete things, uh, with a gap in between them, you move from one to the other one. Uh, and then you, when you see that, uh, you understand that consciousness itself uh, is a phenomenon that has no real continuity, uh, stops and starts, moves from one thing to another one. Uh, 
it is not yours. It's kind of hard, hard to see, isn't it? What do you mean consciousness is not yours? It's like the leaves in the forest. You burn them. So right, that's consciousness for you. So this is the idea of these five khandhas. And the best thing to do is always to bring it back to your present experience. Your experience right now, this is these five khandhas. Yeah, right now, this is what you experience. And this whole experience of yours, everything that is part of your experience, all of that is like these leaves in the forest. It is not yours. It doesn't belong to you even. It is basically out of control. It goes according to its own cause and conditions. So <clears throat> you give it up. I'll, I'll come back to how exactly to contemplate this more because even what I say now is probably a bit abstract, right? It's a bit hard to really make sense of that. So I'm going to be even more specific in a, soon about how to actually contemplate this and how to use your meditation to help you with this kind of contemplation. But before I do that, let's just have a look at another couple of suttas because they will kind of give us a bit more background information about this. This next sutta is called The Burden, a bara in Pali. And uh, it is quite a famous sutta. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it before, but it's actually quite famous in Buddhist philosophy. So I'll just mention that briefly in a second. But um, before we do that, let's just uh, go through it. So this also is at Savati. Mendicants, I will teach you the burden, the bearer of the burden, the picking up of the burden, and the putting down of the burden. Listen. And what is the burden? The five grasping aggregates, it should be said. What five? The grasping aggregate of form, the grasping aggregate of feeling, the grasping aggregate of perception, the grasping aggregate of choices, the grasping aggregate of consciousness. This is called the burden. So here we have the word grasping aggregate. So far I've been using the word kanda, and kanda is here aggregate. But here we have the extra word grasping. This is the Pali word upadana. And upadana means like grasping or taking hold of or picking up. Yeah, or um, uh, pick, yeah, picking up is often a good translation for this. And he has this whole idea of something that, you know, we... we um, Attached to, essentially, that's what it, kind of what it comes down to. Upadana, laying hold of something, grasping onto something. Yeah. So these five khandas are the things that we grasp. Yeah. These are the things that we hold on to. That's why there are aspects of personality, yeah. things that we are uh, involved with somehow. Upadana, involvement is not a bad translation maybe for upadana as, as well. Yeah. You are involved with these five things. Yeah. And the Buddha calls them a burden, yeah. So it's not just the fact that they are non-self. It's not just the fact that they are out of control. But they are inherently problematic. That's what they call the burden. This is a way of thinking about dukkha, about suffering. Yeah? These things are problematic. And because of that, and because this is our entire experience, it's our entire world, if you like, it means that from the Buddhist point of view, our entire world, our t entire Existence is problematic. Sometimes when we talk about the idea of dukkha, and you people will say, well, what does it actually mean when the Buddha says uh, uh, dukkha? What does that mean? They're, 
And people will often say, oh, it means that life has dukkha. Yeah, there is pain in life. There is problems in life. It doesn't mean that you know, everything is dukkha or uh, existence is dukkha. It just means that there is some aspect of dukkha in life. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that actually the very nature of existence is problematic. That's what it means. So this is why it is so profound, because this is very, very hard to see. We can maybe see the arising of pain and suffering in life. We can see the arising of happiness sometimes. But to actually understand that the entire nature of existence is problematic, the whole thing is a burden, it's very hard to see. Imagine if you have one of those very powerful experiences of samadhi that are pure bliss, completely peaceful, completely delightful, you're completely content. But the Buddha says even that too, ultimately, is Problematic, that too is a burden ultimately. Very hard to understand this. But this is essentially what the Buddha says. And this is why there is a degree always again of confidence and faith in the Buddha's teachings. To be able to see these things, you have to gradually kind of move forward and then uncover these problems. So the five khandhas are a burden. What do we do with burdens? We chuck them off. Yeah, we get rid of them. They are bad news. So who is the bearer of the burden? First of all, the person, it should be said, the venerable such and such, sorry, the venerable of such and such name and clan. This is called the bearer of the burden. So there's only, only monastics who have a burden, it seems. <coughs> Not sure about that, but I, I think the idea here, this is just a, yeah. I think the word venerable here actually sometimes is used for, for everyone, even for Lay people are sometimes called venerable, actually, in certain contexts. So this could be just a general expression, actually. Or the Buddha is talking to the monastics, or something like that. So uh, the person, yeah, anyone, is the burden. And this is kind of a, an interesting point, yeah, because what is the person apart from the burden itself? And of course, the person and the burden are the same thing here. So it is like the person, you pick up the burden, but what is that you that picks up the burden? Well, it's the burden kind of picking itself up, yeah? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the five khandhas, the grasping exists within the five khandhas. It's just an aspect of the five khandhas. So it's like the five khandhas grasping onto themselves in a sense. The person is not separate from the five khandhas. But this particular statement was taken in Buddhist philosophy more literally than probably the Buddha had meant it. The Buddha just meant it in a general sense, yeah. The person is just like a particular expression of the five khandhas that then grasps on to these five khandhas. But in Buddhist philosophy, this became a very big problem. And a whole school of Buddhism known as the Pugalavada, Pugala is the Pali word for person. Pugalavada, Vada is doctrine, the doctrine of the person. And this whole school around this idea that the person is somehow separate from the five khandhas. And then they had to define, well, what is it then if it's separate? And they couldn't really define it. Yeah, it was a somehow separate, but it was also not separate. And it got very complicated and very technical and very philosophical. And the Theravada school, which was then became established in Sri Lanka and all of that, argued against, everyone else argued against the Puglavada and saying they had misunderstood this particular teaching. Yeah, there is no separate Pugala, it's just part of the five khandhas. And that Puglavada school eventually died out. There are still some ancient texts, I think they exist mostly in, uh, in Chinese translation from that school, but basically it's completely lost. It doesn't, there's nothing left of that school at all. Huh? 
but it's kind of strange, right? It's kind of interesting. You, you use words, and it's so easy to be misunderstood. It's so easy to misunderstand things, and the whole history of Buddhism can be, can be almost um, read as a sequence of misunderstandings of what the Buddha taught. And then you argue about them, and various schools arise because of this. You have the Sarvastivadins, yeah, which is all-exist school, the idea that things exist in time. Yeah? This was one very, very big, uh, it was a very big school in Buddhism, and uh, lots of arguments over kind of what happened there. Pugalavadin is another one, huh? etc., etc. So this is kind of, for this reason, this sutta is very controversial because of that one word, yeah? The person taking up the five kantas. Uh. So, <laughs> anyway, let's leave that to one side. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just interesting more from a historical point of view. I don't, I don't think we, it's important not to read too much into it. Uh. So let's go on. What is the picking up of the burden? It is the craving that leads to future lives, mixed up with relishing and greed, taking pleasure in the various, taking pleasures here and there. That is craving for sensory experience, craving for continued existence, and craving to end existence. This is called the picking up of the burden. This is like the second noble truth, right? Right there. And that specific craving. So uh, the picking up of the burden is what we do every time we get reborn. Uh, you pick up the burden afresh. Uh, yeah, and then you carry it with you for that life, and then you die, and then you pick it up again. Uh, yay, burden! Whoa, what, how wonderful it is to exist. Yeah? And this is kind of how we go on, move on, because we relish it, uh, and we think it is delightful. Uh, we don't really understand what is going on. And then we cry our tears out. Oh no, my beautiful burden is causing me so much suffering here. Uh, Maybe that burden isn't so beautiful. Huh? This is part of the problem. Huh? And what is the putting down of the burden? It is the fading away and cessation of that very same craving with nothing left over. Giving it away, letting it go, releasing it and not adhering to it. This is called the putting down of the burden. Huh? The ending of craving, the ending of desire, stopping the rebirth in the future. Huh? The five aggregates are indeed burdens, and the person is the bearer of the burden. Picking up the burden is suffering in the world, and putting the burden down is happiness. When the heavy burden is put down without picking up another, and having plucked out the craving, root and all, you are hungerless, extinguished. So that is the idea of the burden. Yeah? So we have now seen the idea of the five khandas very briefly from the point of view of non-self. It doesn't, they don't belong to you. They have their own, a life of their own. Yeah? And then we have seen it from the point of view of suffering, being a burden in life. And now, what we're going to do now, we're going to have a look at something which kind of ties all of these ideas together a little bit. And this next sutta is a very, very, very famous sutta. It is uh, traditionally said to be the second sutta taught by the Buddha, the Anatalakana Sutta, the characteristics of non-self. And this kind of brings together uh, understanding the five khandhas in terms of the three characteristics. 
This is what we're always trying to do in Buddhism. We're trying to see this personality, these five aggregates, uh, in terms of three things, uh, impermanence, uh, suffering, and non-self. Uh, that is what kind of is almost like the definition of insight in Buddhism, seeing the khandhas in this way. It doesn't have to be the five khandhas. It can also be the six senses, for example. This is another uh, kind of what is called known as the vipassana bhumi, the ground of insight. But uh, five khandhas is probably the most common way. That's why you find it in the first noble truth. So let's have a look at this uh, kind of more general expression found in the very famous Anattalakana Sutta. So this was the... Yeah, okay, so let's just uh, let's, let's get started. One time the Buddha was staying near Benares. This is Varanasi uh, in the deer park at Isipatana. There the Buddha addressed the group of five mendicants. Yeah, so uh, here this is soon after the Buddha's awakening. Uh, and the Buddha has walked or traveled all the way from Bodhgaya and has traveled all the way to Benares. And uh, for those of you who have not been to India, you know it's quite, it's a long distance. Yeah, it's uh, several hundred kilometers. Uh, it will take a long time to walk. Uh, in, in India, usually these days you go by bus or maybe by train. It's many hours journey between these uh, various uh, cities. And so the Buddha would have walked because he wanted to start his teaching to the five mendicants, the five monks who had supported him yeah, before his awakening. And this is one of those, I don't know, it's very touching in a sense. Yeah, the Buddha, after his awakening, the very first thing he thinks, well, who was helpful to me? Who should I teach first? Well, actually, I should teach first the people who were helpful to me. And so he goes to teach the five mendicants because of that. It's kind of, it's nice, isn't it? And it says something about the, the nature of the, of the Buddha. So he travels all this way. He goes to the deer park at Isipatana, and uh, you can go there in the present day. It's a place called Saranat, just outside on the outskirts of Benares. Uh, and uh, the deer park is still there. It's actually one of the delightful places to go and visit if you go on a pilgrimage to India. It's a very beautiful place. Uh, but um, yeah, so this uh, is still there. So this is what happens in this place. It's the second sutta, the second kind of time the Buddha is supposed to have spoken to these five ascetics, these five mendicants. Uh, and he says to the mendicants, Venerable Sir, they replied, and the Buddha said this. So at this point, they are already stream enters. Yeah, they have been taught by the Buddha, and they have all achieved stream entries. They already have very deep insight. And now the Buddha wants to take them all the way to full awakening. So he wants to give them a profound discourse that enables them to become arahants. So this is really about the deepest aspects of the Buddhist path, uh, yeah, the, kind of all the way to the very end of the, uh, the path itself. Uh. So this is what the Buddha says to them. Uh. Mendicants, form is not self. If form were self, it would not lead to affliction. And you could compel form in this way. May my form be like this. May my form not be like that. But because form is not self, it leads to affliction. And you cannot compel form in this way. May my form be like this. May my form not be like that. So this is the, the Buddha showing us what it means to be non-self. Yeah? And the first idea here is that uh, 
for something to be self, it has to be something that is happy, huh? yeah, something that is enjoyable. Huh? The fact that it leads to affliction, in other words, it leads to suffering, huh? it always has a problem at the end of the day. You cannot control it, the form goes whatever way it does, and it, you attach to it, and then you look yourself in the mirror and think, jeepers, what happened over those years? It's kind of collapsing on me. Yeah, looking, and this is kind of the nature of form. Yeah, it is kind of it leads to suffering when you hold on to it, and uh, the re and it leads to suffering precisely because you cannot compel it. You cannot make your body what you want it to be. Eventually, the body is going to fall apart. Eventually, it is going to do get sick. Eventually, it's going to get old. Eventually, it's going to uh, end up in the cemetery at Karakatta in a small pile of ashes. Yeah, that's where kind of all bodies end up. And so you cannot have these things uh, the way you want them to be. Uh, you cannot avoid certain things. Uh, it always, at the end of the day, it ends in tears, as they say. Yeah, it is, it is problematic. It ends in suffering. And uh, you cannot make these things be the way you want them to be. And sometimes people say, yeah, but you can do a little bit. Yeah, you can go running and you can kind of go jogging, you can lift some weights and make the body. But the, the influence we have is very small. In the general trajectory of the body is set by nature. It's not something you can do anything about. It's not going to be the way you want it to be. This is the nature of that's, That is why it is called non-self. It is out of control. It leads to problems. Every time you attach to it, you have asking for trouble. And this is what the Buddha is saying here. This idea of not being under our control is the idea of non-self. So that is what happens to the body. The same thing is true for feelings, right? Exactly the same thing is true for feelings. If you could have feelings the way you wanted them to be, you would always be happy. It's impossible to always be happy. It's impossible to be in jhana all the time. It cannot be. And this shows you, again, that feelings are out of control. They are non-self. It is not something that you can make, compel feelings to be in a certain way. Sometimes you break a leg, yeah? Not because you want to break a leg, but that's just what happens. Some feelings are out of control again. Perceptions, yeah, exactly the same thing. Sometimes you perceive what you like to perceive, but sometimes you see things you don't want to see, or you feel things you don't want to feel, or you perceive people, you know, you, sometimes you perceive enemies. Actually, we don't really want to perceive enemies. It's kind of unpleasant. Uh, perceptions come in a large variety. Some perceptions are really delightful. Some are not. You cannot have always the good perceptions. Choices are non-self. You cannot have the choices that you want. Yeah, this is kind of a weird thing to say. You cannot have the choices that you want. But what do you mean you can't have the choices what you want? Isn't the whole point of choice that you can choose what you want? <laughs> what do you, how can that be? That choices are not self. And what that means is that our choices are limited by all kinds of things. And one of the main things our choices are limited by are our defilements by our ignorance, by not understanding the world in the right way. Yeah? We don't even understand how to choose the right thing. We cannot choose the right thing. If you could choose to be really joyful all the time, you would choose that. You cannot choose that. It's impossible because your defilements are blocking you. It's one of those interesting ideas. What does it mean to have free will? Yeah, this is one of those kind of great debates in, kind of in Western philosophy, etc. Free will. Is there such a thing as free will? 
And I think the whole debate, from a Buddhist point of view, is, is completely beside the point. Because in the Buddhist idea, free will means a will that is not constrained by defilements, by ignorance, by misunderstanding. Yeah? So we, cannot, we don't even know what happiness is. We don't even know where to look for it. That is the biggest problem with free will. What is the point of having free will if you don't even know what to choose? This is the real issue. So the idea, one of the ideas of the Buddhist path is actually to liberate the will so you can choose those things that are really useful. You can choose things that actually lead to your happiness. Yeah, you liberate yourself from the defilements of the mind that enables you to choose stillness, peace, samadhi, happiness on the path. That, to me, is what free will really is about. The ability to choose your own happiness. We don't even have that ability to start with. That kind of turns the idea of free will around in a completely different direction. In a direction which actually is much more interesting than the theoretical debate that very often happens. So then... As you practice this path, you're able to access profound meaning, profound happiness, the avoidance of suffering. And once you have that choice, that to me is what liberating the will really is all about. And eventually, of course, giving up will altogether, because will itself is like a torturer. Will itself is unpleasant. So the ability to be able to choose, to give up choice... <laughs> Sounds like an oxymoron. You choose to give up choice. How is that possible? Well, that, the point is that that is possible. Yeah? And the Buddha says as much in the suttas. Uh, you actually, by living in a certain way, by having the right kind of choices, eventually you overcome choice altogether because choice itself is uh, actually problematic. So, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, choice is out of control. Consciousness is the last one here. Consciousness is out of control. Consciousness is not self. For if consciousness was self, it wouldn't lead to affliction. And you could compel consciousness. May my consciousness be like this. May it not be like that. But because consciousness is not self, it leads to affliction. You can't compel consciousness. May my consciousness be like this. May it not be like that. So again, it is the awareness, yeah? the things that we are aware of in the world, the various senses or whatever, they are. It's already preconditioned, set in motion. There's only certain things you can be aware of. Your consciousness is trapped also in conditionality. And it's not up to you to decide exactly how and where you want to be conscious. So it's, very, it's interesting, yeah? the idea of... Uh, this is kind of what it means to be non-self, that you, are not, you can't really control these things. They go according to their own nature, according to their own conditionality. So, okay, so let's go on, carry on. What do you think, mendicants? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. But if it is impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? It is suffering, sir. But if it is impermanent, suffering and perishable, is it fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, I am this, this is myself. No, sir. This is a very standard way that uh, uh, 
that the Buddha expresses these ideas and talks about the khandhas in the suttas, he starts off by asking whether it is permanent or impermanent. Is it reliable or unreliable? Is it changeable or is it not changeable? And of course, form is changeable. Yeah? There's, nothing, there's nothing essential in form that is always there. It is always moving, morphing into another state, becoming something else. The body, the things we see, everything in the world in, that relates to form somehow, it's always changing. And we, we kind of know that. Yeah, we can sort of see that, but we haven't really seen it deeply enough. And that is really the issue here. So then, that which is impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? Well, sometimes people think, oh, it doesn't matter as long as things are kind of impermanent, as long as you know that, yeah, and you go with the flow, it's not going to be suffering, yeah. But actually, it doesn't work like that. And the reason why it doesn't work like that is because as long as we have a sense of self, that sense of self will attach to things in the world. And it will attach to things also in the form sphere. Yeah? We cannot avoid that attachment. That is the very nature of having a sense of self. So because of that, because it is the nature of the self, or the feeling of a self, or the perception of a self to attach to things, that combined with the fact that things are impermanent means it is always going to be problematic. You're always going to grieve, you're going to be distraught when things change that you are attached to. This is the way it has to be, it cannot be any other way. So this is why impermanence and suffering always go together. And then, when things are both impermanent and suffering, is it reasonable to call that a self? Not Again, it depends how you define a self, yeah? but the self at the time of the Buddha was understood as something that was an essence, something that you are, something that kind of is inherent to you as a person. And that thing that is inherent, if it is changing, well then it's not inherent anymore. By definition, yeah? inherent and changeability are opposites. Also, if there is if the self, if there is all suffering, there's no point in having a self that's suffering, right? The whole point of having a self is that it makes you happy. If it is suffering, you'd rather not have that self. It's kind of pointless. A self that is dukkha and lasts forever, dukkha, that's kind of that's kind of awful. That's the last thing you want. So it doesn't make any sense to talk about a self anymore when you see it in this way. Things are unreliable, out of control. The idea of a self is wrong. And uh, it is not just that it is, uh, this is not just in relation to the philosophy at the time, but it's also in relation to how we actually feel about ourselves. Because all of those philosophies about the self being permanent and Brahma and the God being permanent and all of these things, they are rooted in the idea that we f- somehow we feel like we exist in a way we don't actually exist. Yeah, it feels like we are here, I'm here. Yeah, but that very feeling is false. And this is kind of what insight is on the path is about. It's undermining and kind of overturning and to uh, kind of get rid of that false feeling. That feeling is not based on any underlying reality. It turns out to be an illusion. And because it is an illusion, it is problematic. Whenever you have an illusion, whenever you don't see things as the way they are, we're going to make bad choices. We're going to make choices based on assumptions that turn out to be wrong. 
It's like this idea again of building up, you know, a system of logic based on false assumptions, false axioms. The whole lo logic falls to pieces. In the same way, we are building our life on a falsehood. And of course, if you build your life on a falsehood, it's going to end up in tears. It's going to end up really problematic. So we want to avoid, we want to kind of see through that sense of self. So it's not just that this is a reaction to the philosophy at the time. It is a reaction to the very outlook that we have, the very feeling that we have. We're relating to ourselves in the wrong way. That is the problem. So, yeah, it is not fit to be regarded as a self. And then the Buddha goes on with all the other things, yeah, all the other five aspects of personality. Uh, is feeling permanent or impermanent? Uh, impermanent, sir. Uh, but if it is impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? Uh, it is suffering, sir. Uh, but if feeling is impermanent, suffering and perishable, is it fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, I am this, this is myself. No, sir. So feeling is impermanent, so it's suffering. Even if you have a happy feeling, you can't rely on it, and because you can't rely on it, it is ultimately problematic. Yeah, once you lose it, once you lose that beautiful samadhi state, oh no, how can I get it back again? I want it back. That was so nice. And then it turns into suffering, that beautiful state. Is perception permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, sir. But if it's impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? Suffering, sir. But if it is impermanent, suffering and perishable, is it fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, I am this, this is myself. No, sir. So, uh, perceptions in the world, yeah? And I think a, a simple way that I like to kind of think about this is that sometimes you wake up in the morning or you kind of you sometimes you don't feel like yourself yeah you feel a bit kind of different something has happened and that's where you see that you have a perception of yourself yeah you have an idea of what you are what you feel like how you perceive yourself and if one day you don't feel quite like that well then you know that you have an attachment there to a particular perception okay um are choices permanent or impermanent? Uh, yeah, impermanent, sir. Uh, but if it is impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? It is suffering, sir. Uh, but if it is impermanent, suffering, imperishable, is it to be regarded thus? Uh, this is mine. I am this. This is myself. Uh, no, sir. Uh, I should maybe comment very briefly on this idea of this is mine, I am this, this is myself. Yeah? This is a imp very important kind of uh, triple terminology there. Uh, and they refer to different ways of seeing the idea of a self. Yeah? This is mine means that it belongs to the self somehow. Yeah? It belongs to you so you think it should be under your control because it is yours. Uh, just like anything which we think is yours, it is under your control. This is one way that the self expresses itself. It expresses itself through ownership. So if there is no self, well then also it follows that there is no ownership as well. So this is mine. I am this. There you are making an equation between the self and the thing you are looking at. I am feeling, yeah? So you are saying that the self and the feeling are the same thing. 
And, uh, uh, and the last one is, this is my, sorry, <laughs> I am this, this is myself, yeah? So uh, this is myself means that, again, it is kind of a, an aspect of you. This, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm losing my thread a little bit here. Let me just have a look at the Pali to make sure I don't uh, get this wrong. Eso me atta. So this is myself. And in this case, uh, is I am this, this is myself, uh, means in the larger sense that uh, uh, you are... Uh, you are more than the self, and this kind of is included within what you are. Yeah? So it's kind of just slightly different angles of thinking about the idea of self. Okay, let's just finish this off. Uh, so is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Uh, impermanent, sir. Uh, but if it is impermanent, is it suffering or happiness? Uh, suffering, sir. Uh, if it is impermanent, suffering and perishable, is it fit to be regarded thus? Uh, this is mine, I am this, this is myself. No, sir. So now we come to the last part of this sutta, which kind of uh, uh, is the third way that the Buddha talks about uh, the idea of non-self. And um, he says, So you should truly see any kind of form at all, past, future and present, internal and external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all form with right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So uh, here is this kind of important point that uh, whatever there exists of form in the world, uh, wherever you go, wherever realm you get reborn in, uh, whatever kind of corner of the samsaric existence that you can kind of aspire to, or you can go to, or you get reborn, all of that form, whatever it is, has this same characteristic, yeah? The characteristic of non-self, of non-ownership, of not being under your control. There is nowhere to go which actually is exempt from these ideas. And the Buddha says the same thing of these other five khandhas, any kind of feeling at all, Past, future or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all feeling here should be understood with the right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. There is no permanent feeling in the universe. There is no fe- feeling anywhere which comes under your control, regardless of where you are reborn, regardless of where you go. Same is true for perception same is true for choices, yeah? There is no kind of final choice that you can make, and this is your final choice, and you can be there forever after. And then comes really the, the kind of the, the one that is kind of most significant of all, and where the really the biggest problem arises um, in, and has always arisen, yeah, in the world, and this is with consciousness itself. You should truly see any kind of consciousness at all, uh, past, future or present, uh, internal or external, coarse or fine, uh, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness, sabbang vinyananga, with right understanding. This is not mine, I am not this, uh, this is not myself. And so all consciousness yeah, is ultimately also problematic. Yeah. 
all consciousness cannot be held on to. There is no consciousness anywhere that kind of corresponds to a self, that is reliable, that you can hold on to, that is yours. And this is one of the most kind of powerful expressions of this that you find in the suttas. It is right there in one of the, probably considered one of the most important suttas, yeah, soon after the Buddha's awakening, yeah? kind of one of the cardinal suttas, as it sometimes is called, of the Pali Canon. All consciousness is non-self. And it's such an important point, because uh, one of the biggest problems in life uh, is the tendency for human beings. We want to exist. And the problem is very often that this feeling of wanting to exist, uh, it kind of leeches into the Dhamma. Yeah? And people want to find some kind of existence within this Dhamma. So it's very, very common to find eternalist views uh, within Buddhism. People who see a self within the Buddhist teachings, uh, who say that there is some kind of consciousness that is exempt, yeah? There is a certain corner of the universe, a seventh kind of consciousness. Uh, yeah, the Buddha talks about six class of consciousness, but then there is the seventh class of consciousness, yeah? The Buddha kind of in- intimates, he doesn't say it outright, but he intimates uh, that there is a seventh class of consciousness. Uh, no, all consciousness is non-self. All consciousness has these characteristics of being impermanent, unreliable, and suffering. This is what the Buddha is saying here in kind of very clear terms. And so some of these sayings of the Buddha, we need to kind of be, read, see them for what they are, yeah, instead of to kind of have some kind of wishful thinking. And when we allow the wishful thinking to read the suttas rather than reading them for what they are, then, of course, we get the Buddha's message in the wrong way. So these are very significant things, uh, and uh, these are surprisingly important uh, because the Buddhist world loves to misunderstand these things, uh, because this is the human heart. Yeah, we all want to see things that are not actually there. Uh. All right, uh, so that is uh, enough for this morning. We're going to carry on with the five khandhas uh, uh, this afternoon. So. Please have a nice lunch and we'll see you back again at 3 o'clock.